So I think there's a thing called top grading for executives. And basically what you do is you treat their CV as a kind of science experiment. And for each and every role, you ask like three questions. You're like, okay, you were, you, you were say CMO of that company. What were your goals? What did you seek to achieve? What are the results? And, and you just go through each one. And then, and then you, you have kind of from that a really objective measure of their capabilities, impact, and what they've done in reality rather than having a kind of social fit test if you get on with them and like their jokes. Because ultimately what you care about is when they come in, buzz 90 days, are they going to build an amazing team, have a huge impact on their area? Hello and welcome to the Riding Unicorns podcast. This is the podcast all about growth startups. I'm James Pringle. I'm a technology entrepreneur, investor, and VC at Portfolio Ventures. My co-host is Hector Mason. Hector is a partner at B2B Investor Episode 1 Ventures. This podcast is all about uncovering what it takes to build a unicorn business. We speak to some of the best founders and investors, many from unicorn companies, and ask them about their journey, operational insight, tips, lessons, stories, and anything that can help uncover what it takes to build a high-growth business. This week's episode is with Charles Dellingpole, founder and CEO at Comply Advantage, the AI-driven financial crime risk technology company. Charles is one of the UK's top entrepreneurs and angel investors. He has had previous success with the student room and market finance, and his angel portfolio is astonishingly large and contains some amazing portfolio companies. It was genuinely a privilege to have Charles on the show, and it's a great conversation. Let's get started. Hi, Charlie. Welcome to the Riding Unicorns podcast. It's awesome to be here with you, James and Hector. Awesome. Well, we're delighted that you're here. So, Charlie, maybe you could start by explaining what Comply Advantage is. So, a key challenge for many fintech companies is not going to jail for laundering money. Um, and that can be sanctioned evasion. So, you're sending money to the Russians and help helping to fund the war machine or you're getting involved in the mafia or you're sending money to Jeffrey Epstein. So there are all kinds of threats for people knowing who they're doing business with and making sure that that's all legit and you aren't implicating yourself in some sort of scandal. What Combined Advantage does is the core foundations of that. So principally, we have the world's only real-time AI-driven database of high-risk people and companies. So you give us a million names of people and companies and we'll tell you who's a threat based upon our database and algorithms. And then once they start transacting, we have a platform which helps you understand the risk of money laundering or fraud. There's a hundred different rules that you can activate in the rules library based upon the typologies and geographies you're active in. But also there's like AI-based alerting for other kind of alerts. So that should basically be the foundation of your AML program if you're doing fintech. Yeah, really important software, and particularly given at the moment, I'm sure I'm sure there's been a good uptick in after the recent global issues. But um, your your journey's been really interesting so far, right? And I think we have a lot of millennial listeners who will have grown up with the student room, and obviously you were the founder of that. Just interesting to see then go into banking at J.P. Morgan, and that's kind of that's the wrong way around. What was the rationale? I realized when I was building Student Room that I didn't really know what I was doing. It was just kind of like I was coding in my bedroom when I was like 16 and 
Um, I had no real conception of what it was like to build a business or how to think about it. So um, I worked in the kind of tech media telecoms team and working with like lots of big companies all over the world on raising money or buying other companies and doing things like modeling or strategy presentations. So I think just kind of that for me was really a kind of education. And because I was doing the internet companies whilst I was at, at school or university, it wasn't really either or, it was kind of like a post-university thing as well. So time well spent really in terms of education and um, maturation of like your abilities and communication skills. Just follow up from that. It's interesting that you um, opted for banking if you knew you were going to be an entrepreneur or thought you were going to be an entrepreneur rather than going for an operator role to, to get that education. There weren't that many like tech companies back then in terms of the actual pool of companies was quite limited. And so the kind of ecosystem of companies and places that you could go, there wasn't the same kind of Cambrian explosion of opportunities and ability to do a kind of apprenticeship back then. So it was kind of the best option at the time. I think if I was um, the same position now, then I think, you know, the, the kind of chief of staff style role whereby you're working with directly like a CEO or a founder to learn precisely what they're doing and um, all the dark arts you want to be able to master, which will kind of accelerate your um, speed and scale. Perhaps that's a better route now. Charlie, you'd obviously been coding a bit. How did you get into that? And then how early in that process did you realize I want to be a founder? When, when did the light bulb switch from I just like making stuff to I'm going to make stuff and build companies around it? I just got like loads of coding books on like even before Python, like PHP or Perl, right? And just built those websites. I, I built kind of like 10 websites and they all kind of work to an extent. So, um, and it was like early stage of the internet. So therefore, if you simply remove like the query string on the URL, then you'd have like a huge SEO explosion. So the internet was in such a formative stage at that point that it was very easy to have traction or anything you really kind of built. So, but then one of us as a market invoice, he was like, Charlie, you could have won the Olympics and built Facebook. Um, instead, you won the school egg and spoon race. So Facebook hadn't been built at that time. So obviously, I regret not being um, a trillionaire um, now having built that. You know, you've had three companies, Student Room, Comply Advantage and Market, Market Finance, have all been huge successes. So I kind of want to explore like what what's the secret of startup success from someone who's seemingly not actually had that many failures so maybe you're not the best person to ask but i think in europe we haven't necessarily created the, the scale of companies that we should have done so whilst they've all been fine like none of them are listed none of them are kind of like you know multi-hundred million revenue companies so i think um i guess what should i have done to have like achieved like better results a ton and i'm always learning more about things i can improve or things i should have done or how I would have gone faster. And the beauty of, these, of this environment is you never stop learning and you can always push yourself more and you, you can always build more and go faster. And um, even now, if you want to achieve like velocity, if you've hired 10 CTOs and you, you work with people who are great, then you know how to isolate early someone who isn't necessarily the best CTO. Or if, you, if you're doing product marketing, how do you position a product? How do you think about and conceptualize like, how to position your product against a competitor or phrase it in a way that resonates or, you know, like in many respects, you have to be able to delegate to everyone um, and find people much better than you. But then at the same time, to an extent you want to understand everything and be able to have an opinion or at least valid challenging input to 
being a CEO, running a company, it's like easy and challenging at the same time. And because you've had these multiple experiences, you've had quite a lot of reps in terms of getting started, the sort of zero to one piece. What's the one thing that you do in the first 12 months of starting a business that maybe isn't a well-known practice or common thing that people talk about that you think helps set you up for success? If you're going to commit your time and your resources and your friend's resources, ideally you'd fail quickly and fail cheaply, right? So when I was building my advantage, I knew exactly what I was building. I could see like there was 20 years worth of incremental improvements and compounding benefits of having more and better algorithms. And there was all this technology that's coming. So, so, I mean, on day one, I had like extreme conviction that it could work. And same market invoice, like I could see how it built upon what I had done at Shooting Room. Fundamentally, it was still building and selling. It was building technology and selling it to a client base. So it kind of, um, it was always an adjacency to what I'd done beforehand, building upon what I knew I could do. And I had spent a lot of time building conviction around the market. And, and, and that's principally to kind of avoid failure, but also to in- increase velocity as well. So I think at the point where you start a company, the phone doesn't ring, n- nothing happens. You need intense energy behind it to make anything happen because the vast majority of companies go nowhere and atrophy and die and uh, live in the complete obscurity. So you really want to avoid that terrible fate and build something of lasting value. And how much of that is a product of the passion you have for the problem? Because I'm kind of always interested in this, like how many founders are out there who actually build huge successes while not caring that much about the state of the world once they're done with it? I think a lot of VCs and a lot of people believe that founders have to care so deeply about the problem and have to really want to see the world like once they're done with it and make some kind of an impact in it and don't believe that you can be successful as a founder if you just see like a financial opportunity or just find it satisfying to build stuff. So I wonder how, how important you find it to how important the actual problem is to you and the sort of state of the world once you're done with it. I think if you're building a company, you have to pursue it with such intensity and for such a long period of time and with such conviction that if you if you don't love it to an extent, then you are going to fail. Like um, if you're a VC or investor like yourselves, then you can be intellectually promiscuous and you can go into different areas. You can like um, invest capital in different places. And it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's always changing. It's always different. You don't necessarily need to, to really care about the space because it's sufficiently exotic and alluring and intellectually novel that you, you, know, you don't necessarily have to love it. Whereas, I mean, for, for my advantage, for instance, I think lending fundamentally is quite like dry. It's like default rates, customer acquisition costs, bills of lading or underlying collateral that you're interrogating. Whereas for what we're doing, there's this whole ocean of challenge around arabic name matching and natural language processing and political exposure regulation and the actual substrate of the company was vast enough to make it interesting whereas lending for me was just like such a kind of narrow space the the intensity with which you'd have to love the metrics would be a lot more than if you can move from chechen terrorist groups to nlp at the same time so Otherwise, after six years, you'd be like, guys, this is, this is so boring. I have to do something else now. I, I, I'm just like so bored of this. So 
if you change jobs every four years, it makes sense because after that you're kind of fresh. Whereas building a company, you, you can't just leave, right? Like you, 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 you're the founder, you have to pursue it to the bitter end. Charlie, with someone with your experience and capability, how do you go about hiring? And how do you get comfortable with other people touching key parts of the business once you have hired them? So I think there's a thing called top grading for executives. And basically what you do is you treat their CV as a kind of science experiment. And for each and every role, you ask like three questions. You're like, okay, you were, you, you were say CMO of that company. What were your goals? What did you seek to achieve? What are the results? And, and you just go through each one. And then, and then you, you have kind of from that a really objective measure of their capabilities, impact, and what they've done in reality, rather than having a kind of social fit test if you get on with them and like their jokes. Because ultimately what you care about is when they come in, buzz 90 days, are they going to build an amazing team, have a huge impact on their area? And often references aren't particularly predictive because they're simply being nice, someone that kind of already spoke to. So, so, so I think that in terms of like hiring, it's really about the impact they had in their previous roles and really trying to avoid like bias and just making and focus really on the actual tangible impact they had. I think those are how you get comfortable trusting people with particular functions. Like you have no choice. We're now 440 people. We have like one and a half thousand clients. We have, we have people in, in, in four different countries. It's kind of, there's no way that I can keep track of everything. It has to be the team. It has to be, the executives, it has to be the individuals aligned on a common goal, working effectively with clear individual mandates. So yeah, I think as that evolves from like a 50 person startup to like 440, it's kind of, yeah, it, it's, um, you have no choice but to trust. Is it kind of a blessing that the previous companies that could have, as in your own words, they could have gone further maybe, is it kind of a blessing that they, they didn't to some extent and they were sort of these nice, successful stepping stones towards now Comply Advantage, which you're taking deeper, further, is having a bigger impact, is more critical to society. Is that kind of a good thing that it wasn't a complete Facebook unicorn the first time? Because that would have been really hard for you to be at the same level as the business. The growth that you have personally around like, how you can hire, how you can achieve certain things, the complexity of the problems you want to be able to tackle. Um, I think that only increases with time and experience in terms of if I do a fourth company at that point, hopefully I'd be I'd be able to go at a much faster rate because I could preempt things. I could be much, much faster at the point where you're 100 people. You, you can see in advance the kind of process systems and people need to get in place when you're 300 people. Or So I think... Um, the, the ambition which you can approach things, the trust that you're given always increases. So, yeah, I think the, the more success you have, the, 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 more it can, the more it compounds because the more money you are capable of demonstrating you, you, you should be trusted with and the more people will want to join you because the results you've achieved your previous team's investors are kind of self-evident. So to the question, do I regret not being... Um, having great success in the past, like, no, I wish I'd done better in the past. It leads to the question of, around you as a CEO. And I just wonder what kind of a CEO you are. Like maybe that's through your own lens or maybe that's through the lens of your employees and how that's changed over time and, and with the different startups and the things that you've learned. 
I think in terms of the way I've changed as a CEO, I think I think there's even angles to the job in terms of the communication with the different stakeholders, like employees, customers, um, investors. The, the, the kind of focus of the time you spend, the ways in which you interact with team members, I think the things that you can say that can motivate them, your understanding of like the different fields. There's basic, basic like leadership elements about how you want to treat people, and hopefully that's kind of evolved with time, and you can become a much more capable and inspiring and effective leader. That also never ends in terms of its ability to evolve and and grow. Yeah, just slightly moving track a little bit. So you are a very active angel investor. I think Crunchbase says you've done. 27 investments it's maybe even more than that so how do you view angel investing and what do you look for in companies and teams that you invest in so i've done 143 in the past like seven years i thought it was more (laughs) and initially it was like friends who were like hey talk to charlie he's done a tech company beforehand He'll be able to help you. So I kind of like, you know, get, everyone was in their friends to me and they'd be like, you know, can you, can you help me raise a round? Um, and then you get kind of friends with whom you invested or you get ex team members who want to build their own company because they joined the company, like they joined marketing explicitly to learn how to run a company, right? To your point around learning. So most of it kind of derives from that basically. So like if you believe in building an ecosystem and helping the economy then you can have a moral obligation to help like the next generation of people build a great company. Um, there's also the kind of industrial angle of a lot of them are clients of my advantage, as in um, most of the deals probably come from someone at my advantage saying, Hey, can I talk to Charlie? We're a big fan of my advantage. Um, can you invest it around? Right. So um, probably like half of them are probably clients, right. Or, or prospects, right. So it's a good way to build, a great relationship with a client, understand more about different markets like insurance or banking or payments or identity where lots of our partners are as well. So, or, or it's like, if I've known someone for a long time and they're raising a round and they previously exited, then it's kind of, I think if anything, it becomes much more of a social thing in terms of like, you know, we had dinner together like 10 times with mates. Can you invest? Like I had no choice not to invest. So, yeah. So I was going to ask about, um, you've, got lots of operator experience, you've done angel investments and big portfolios, so lots of information coming through there. Very strong network with lots of other angels, etc. So you've got quite a broad view of the space. What do you think is not working within venture at the moment? What would you like to see change around venture capital, startups and technology specifically here in the UK? If you look at the stock exchange, back in 2006, maybe like a third of the money raised globally was on UK LSE. LSE. So it's like 5.30 now. In an hour, in two hours, it's the fintech founders LSE drinks. And um, like now it's like 3% of the capital raised is in the UK. So um, there's been this staggering collapse in the UK stock market. And for the UK economy to be able to pay for the NHS, you know, you need some decent sized companies who are winners. We haven't 
collectively created that in the past 10 years. So there's an existential threat to the economy if we don't produce decent companies. You can't just have all these companies that are kind of atrophying and decaying and where the stock market's a museum. You need to have some winners who are building global companies that can pay for everyone's pensions and pay taxes and like, have we done that successfully in the UK? Like, no, and we have to, otherwise we will live in poverty in 30 years time. And getting to know a bit more about you and your day to day, you mentioned you were coding from a young age. Do you just still do any coding now? If you want to really understand the mechanics behind modern technology, you kind of have to in terms of th- th- things like Kafka or the cloud or or um, machine learning. There's so much technology that's that's very specific and evolves very, very quickly. If you want to build a tech company, you kind of have to, I think. Before I built my Vantage, I did it myself like in a POC to see that it was really possible to build on a build. And a big foundational bet was that as technology improves, so will our product and we be the beneficiary and we will be able to build via algorithms whatever else building um, via humans, right? So to really stay current, you have to be able to get your hands dirty and actually connect to the database, write some code. Otherwise, you, you'll be so rusty, I think. You'll be less effective. Yeah, and I've got a couple of questions. My first one was really around like, I'm a believer that the, the tentacles of financial services kind of drive so much and almost stuff that most people are kind of unaware of. On things like terrorism and you know mafia, how much can fintech and the stuff you're doing impact those non-financial activities? The biggest problem that Pablo Escobar had wasn't moving the cocaine, which was easy. It was moving the dollars back from the US to Colombia. That was the real bottleneck, and that was what really got him. Al Capone wasn't arrested for um, a murder. He was arrested for tax evasion. So the paper trail, the following the money, like often that's by far the best way. And to a big extent, the financial industry has been deputized by the government to solve these problems. So... Regulation is where it is because where technology is where it is. Like these banks, these payment companies, their biggest team often is compliance. If you can build a much more effective mechanism to solve those problems, then I think you, you, you can move people from boring monotonous tasks onto strategic investigation and have a huge impact and then increase the threshold for what's acceptable and squeeze people out of the system. So yeah, I mean, part of the reason I started the company was because the systems which were there previously were so crap and there was just an obvious way to solve the problems just required massive scale huge investment and the the kind of subtle application of clever technology over many years yeah and there's this kind of sort of bond film feel to some of this stuff have you got any crazy stories about anything that kind of crops up along the way in the first year i think one of our clients was sponsoring a football team and their offices were raided by the police because it was a Ponzi scheme or something. And um, and then the next week, one of our clients had their offices raided by the police as well. And what happened was that a client, which was a fifth of their revenue, the, the head of compliance had basically asked the exec committee to shut down that client because it just seemed suspect. And, and thankfully, when the police raided the office they'd already offboarded that client and the team had the courage of their convictions to say, 
even though this client seems suspect and constitutes a huge portion of revenue, we're still going to shut them down. So I think um, the, the whole police raids, the whole, like the, the first clients we had were sending money to Somalia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, so Al-Shabaab, Taliban, ISIS. So, you know, it's kind of how you prevent money going to ISIS versus going to people who need their remittances for like paying their family. It's kind of part of why I built the company is because it was interesting because it wasn't just bureaucratic adherence to rules. It was impacting people's lives and um, you could see the tangible ways in which you could improve the functioning of critical infrastructure and systems. And just getting to know you as a person, what drives you? And has that, has that stayed the same throughout your whole career? I think what's fun is working hard with great people on ambitious projects and achieving like great things. I think like irrespective of what we're doing, that's always fun. Like having having big goals and doing cool stuff and at least thinking about like the impact you're having in terms of um, you know, are you reducing the amount of terrorism in the world? Are you are you building something state of the art? Are you changing an industry? I think that's fun. But also I think there's a kind of moral obligation to do something worthwhile with your time in life in terms of hopefully everyone building unicorns will save the economy. So yeah, I think if you're excited about the world and about society and about technology, then it's amazing the tools we have and people you can go and connect with to get to build cool stuff. So this should be this kind of exciting foment of cool stuff and people and ideas and technology. Yeah, so I mean, the, 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 there really shouldn't be a better time to be alive than now in terms of what we can do and the stuff we can we can build. Yeah, well, I think that's a interesting insight and a, a good way to start wrapping things up. And so, Charlie, we always end these podcasts with our dinner party guest game, which is if you could have dinner with any three people in the world, who would they be? So I had a dream last night that I was walking with Vladimir Putin and um, I had a discussion with him in my dream, which is quite weird. Like, um, I, I guess I'd probably have to go with Putin and Xi Jinping and third person would probably have to be Joe Lowe, the person implicated in the um, in the scandal in Malaysia, I guess, because they're, they're all at the forefront of the challenges we have with foreign adversaries and corruption and bribery. So, well, thank you so much, Charlie, for coming on and telling us your riding unicorn story. There's some great insight in there around what you've done in the past, what you're doing now, what founders can do to structure their businesses in the right way, hopefully for success, and how important this whole venture space is for the future of our economies. Awesome. Brilliant. Thank you. That's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. To stay up to date with the latest episodes, please follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We also have a newsletter called Reading Unicorns, which is another great way to get every episode direct to your inbox. Please tell your friends about it and engage with us on social media. And we'll see you on the next episode.